Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself, that's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we've got with us another incredible guest. We have with us Dr. Vishal Virani, who is the head of UK Health at YouTube. But his career started as a clinical doctor in the NHS, after which he moved into healthcare strategy consulting for a few years, worked at venture-backed startups like Ada. Um, and I'm sure many of you know, he's one of the co-founders of Dropreneurs, which was an amazing, credible community, and which was one of the reasons as to why we entered the world of entrepreneurship um, and he is doing incredible incredible things at YouTube helping healthcare professionals enter the world of content creation so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show Vishal how are you buddy I'm very well thank you for having me um, guys I know you're doing super cool things at YouTube you're really helping content creators really enter the creator economy particularly for YouTube but we want to really take it back to the kind of the beginning of your career right take us to the beginning in terms of the motivation to study, the motivation to kind of become a clinician, and then we'll kind of bring it up to present day. I wanted to get into medicine in order to help people. I think it's probably the same for a lot of others. And as I rather naively back then as a school kid thought that becoming the doctor or doing medicine was the only way to help people. And Mm. so that way it was fairly clear in my mind that that's what I would do. And went down that road, went to med school. And, you know, med school was very different back then. There weren't the Mm. same opportunities that you see now for medical students to explore not only alternative careers outside of medicine, but also the alternative or I should say additional aspects to medicine, such as digital health, such as um, the business side of healthcare such as content creation. And so, you know, mm. I think it's now a very interesting time to be a medical mm. student. You are able to absorb a lot more perspectives and have a much, much better rounded kind of medical education in a way. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't have that. And in a way it's, in a way it's good because you kind of stay on the straight and narrow. You're not distracted <laughs> by all these other things. And, uh, and so, you know, did, did my med school very, worked very diligently and um and then you know came out the other end did my f1 f2 and it's probably when i got to my f2 where i started thinking about what else was out there um and exploring i would say tell us a bit more about having completed foundation training and then when do the seeds get planted of transitioning into healthcare strategy consulting in what appears to be a whole different world right you work so hard there's a sunk cost fallacy you know, what were kind of, is it frustrations? Was it opportunities that kind of made you make the leap? And tell us about that process. Yeah, I mean, I think a more general point to start with, when you think about where the seeds are planted, I think that going back to what I was saying previously, the seeds are now planted all along the journey for Mm. for, for school students and medical students. If I look at some of the students at my old school, where I've gone gone back to talk a couple of times recently, 
the yeah. amount of things that they are doing outside of the core curriculum is, yeah. is mm. incredible. And actually, that is one of my big pieces of advice to them when I speak to them. It's like, don't pigeonhole yourself or go down the single track of, well, I want to do medicine and therefore I'm going to study biology and chemistry and then I'm going to yeah. go to medical or I want to become a banker. So I'm going to study economics and then I'm going to uh, study economics again at university and, and, you know, go down that track. So, so, you know, broadening your horizons is key. And therefore I'm seeing those seeds being planted a lot sooner for, for people. But for myself, it was, relatively late on really i would say literally in f2 which is when okay. i it was initially a push factor because it was a oh i always thought i would be a gp i went and did my four month gp rotation in f2 and i saw that you know what the partners were doing in the practice at least to my untrained eye looked very similar to what i was doing but yes they see the patients in a short period of time but they're basically seeing patients all day they're working on these very similar clinical pathologies and uh, patients that I was, I thought, mm, where is the progression here? Is this yeah. stimulating enough for me? Now, obviously what I didn't see is all of the other stuff that partners do, for example, they're running their own business, they're working with CCG, advising uh, all sorts of healthcare companies on the side, even back then. Mm. Uh, so I didn't see all of that. I just saw the clinical work. I was like, hmm, where's the progression here? So then I started exploring and I started reading around mm. business. And so I, you know, went and, read the business section of the newspaper it's little things like that you say oh here's yeah. an article about how Woolworths from showing my age now Woolworths from back in the day when we had that you know why is Woolworths why are the Woolworths profits falling or yeah. why is Boopa um why is the Poopa's Boopa's profit margin increased by 10 percent in the last couple of years so you, know, you start to explore these business questions and then the thing you realize is that there isn't a single right answer to these questions where there is in medicine and that hmm. bit really got me intrigued. I was like, oh, I'd love to go into a line of work where there are 10 different answers to a question, nice. 10 different hmm. solutions, and you can apply a bit of creativity. You can take from multiple different disciplines in order to solve a particular problem. And, you know, you are valued for that creative thinking. And, and you know, the truth is that some of that creativity is stifled in medicine. Well, rightly mm. so. You have very strict evidence bases behind the drugs that are, that, are, uh, that are prescribed to your patients. You have very strict guidance from NICE around what is cost effective, that you're allowed to prescribe, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a very different world. And I got very intrigued by that world where there were uh, multiple answers to the question. And, and so I would say the seeds were planted when I started reading the business section of the newspaper. Then I started started reading the um, the business section of The Economist, and then I started reading Bloomberg Business Week. And through reading those things, I was like, hmm, this world's really interesting. And then I learned about consulting. And I was like, oh, nice. there's actually a career where I can start to um, use some of these, or I, I, I should say kind of tackle some of these business cases in order to, uh, in order to actually earn a living. No, Amazing. I think that's incredible. One, also showing our age, I do miss Woolworths as well. That was what <laughs> I loved going there as, as 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 a kid. There was one in Angel, I remember. Um, but still yeah, big in Australia because that's where they're actually from. So yeah, oh, so they're still open. As yeah, in, like, it's, it's still okay. big in Australia, I believe. It's one of their biggest uh, one of their biggest sort of brands out there on the, on oh, the wow. street. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Um, Vishal, I want to ask you a question at this stage, right? Does do you think medical school, the curriculum in general? I know right now people are exploring loads of different opportunities right at medical school, but does being a medical student lend itself to you becoming a very sort of a skilled person by the time you graduate? So you've gone on to graduate, become an F2, 
and you've got all these problem solving skills, right? Is that from medical school or have you got that from somewhere else? Or where does that sort of skill come from? So, I mean, I think something like a soft skill, like problem solving develops over time through practice in real world Mm -hmm. environments. And so, yes, medical students do develop that skill, because if you think about the clinical situations where they are presented or confronted with a case with a patient who has a set of symptoms, and they then need to piece that puzzle together to get the right answer. Now, um, the, ultimately, there is only one right answer often with medicine, but getting to mm. that answer requires a very structured problem solving process, which is mm ingrained into you over a period of time so yeah i think that you definitely develop those structured problem solving skills not because of anything you read in the books or the lecture theater but because of the way that you have to apply the knowledge that you did get from those books and lecture theater into the real world Hmm. when you get out onto the wards Hmm. amazing no amazing definitely that kind of follows on nicely with kind of solving problems Tell us a bit more about the world of strategy consulting. We hear it and it's becoming even more popular. What were you actually doing? How was life different to being on the wards? To now, I imagine being in kind of a corporate environment, in an office, meeting clients. Um, tell us a bit more about, you know, your career journey at that point. Yeah, so I mean, look, let me, let's start by the thinking about the context of the clients that you work for, because ultimately that is why you're in that work, because mm-hmm. you are delivering clients who are paying for you paying for you to do so so there are a couple of different client types that i work that you would typically work with in consulting so one is investor clients who are interested in acquiring either a minority or a majority stake in a particular business and so they would like to understand a little bit more about that particular business so how have the numbers been trending over the last few years so has the profit let's say the revenue been going up, has the profit margin been going up or down, Mm. and then trying to give a sense of the the direction of travel for that business from a financial Mm. perspective. But then they're also interested in the sector that business operates in. And so what are the fundamentals of that sector? What, What makes the success in that sector? So let's take an example of elderly care homes, which is a sector I worked in quite a lot. So, Mm. you know, we would have a lot of investor clients who say, well, we've heard the the elderly care sector is growing and we think that this particular group of care homes is an attractive one to buy. So we then need to say, well, first of all, let us do some analysis for you on the elderly care sector. Let us um, let us um, prove or disprove this hypothesis that it is a growing sector over the next five to 10 years. Um, And so that involves a lot of qualitative research, interviewing experts in the field, a lot of quantitative research, analyzing the data that's out there um, for, for kind of for the growth of a particular industry. So there's the investor clients and then the other, and then there's what we call corporate strategy clients who are the businesses themselves who are trying to understand how to operate better. It may be that there are some issues on their cost base, so their cost base is going up and they don't understand how they can bring that under control. It may be that they are losing market share in a particular industry because their products are not so relevant anymore, because 
because competitors have got lower pricing or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe there's a business that wants to expand to a couple of new geographies and they want to understand mm. where they should expand. We're, you know, oh, we're really big in the UK and Germany, which is the third country that we should move into. Yeah. And, and so there's lots of those different types of business questions that you start tackling when you, uh, when you get into consulting. So it really is quite similar to a lot of the articles that you'll read in the newspaper and The Economist about, about these businesses. You kind of just get into the details of those problems. Hmm. I find that incredible. As in, I can imagine at one point in your career, you're reading the articles and then a few years later, you're actually getting into the thick of it, really figuring out, you know, like you described the care homes, product lines, which countries to kind of go in and penetrate into more. Tell us then, you know, you do consulting, you know, it's scratching that itch, you know, you're, I imagine, stimulated to a certain degree. Why then jump and work for a startup? Right. Because I see people that do strategy consulting as a certain type, a certain trait and characteristics. And then you have the, the startup guys. Right. Uh, and I know Ada is super famous. You know, the VC back, they're doing incredible things with AI. Um, and you're kind of managing kind of the business development on that side. How does a strategy consultant become a startup guy? So anyone can become a startup guy, actually, which is the beauty of that world. Mm. Uh, the reason I jump ship is because you get to a point with consulting where like, these reports that we're putting together are half of them are just sitting on the shelf or if you're lucky half of them are i mean realist, realistically maybe 90 percent of them are sitting on the shelf gathering dust oh wow is is any action meaningfully being taken i mean there's multiple different reasons for that let's say on a corporate strategy side you develop the strategy and actually maybe it's very sound but ultimately there are politics within that business that means some of the yeah. things you suggest are not going to be implemented or they will be but maybe 10 years later um and then yeah. on the investment side you know at the, at the end of the day people investors will analyze lots of businesses but will only actually acquire a few of them uh, mm. in any given year and and so yeah you get to the point where like i want to get my hands dirty i want to be operational i want the things that I do each day or each week to lead to tangible impact, which is making some type of difference somewhere. Um, and so I, um, you know, I thought that going into industry would be the way to do that. The startup route came up opportunistically. So, you know, I've okay. known Claire Novarol very, uh, for a very long time. She was the original, co original founder of Doctorpreneurs. And she's obviously one of the co-founders at Ada. And so we got chatting at that point in time when I was like, mm, I'm done with consulting now. What else is yeah. out there? Um, and she was like, oh, we're just, um, we're just setting up our biz dev operations in the, in the UK. We'd love to start working with the NHS, selling to them. Do you want to come on board for that? And I said, yeah, for sure. I mean, what I have been doing is developing strategies for businesses. Yeah. So why not now Ooh. develop that strategy for Ada? What I had actually been doing at my first consultancy is a lot of pure biz dev because we mm. were relatively small. So I was going out to a lot of investment firms say, look, here's our pitch. Here's what we can bring to the table for you. Next time you've got an investment that you're thinking about, think of us and hire us. And so, you know, that actual legwork, that dog's work going out and, and, and yeah. pitching, I had done a lot of. So I was like, you know, combine that strategy work with the actual pitching that I'd done. So, okay, I could do a job for you on on, on BizDev. Um, and so that was it really. I said, okay, let me get stuck in. Hmm. So I think you're fortunate, you know, you did Doctorpreneurs with Claire and an opportunity arised. Whereas what about the, the, the standard clinician, right? Who maybe doesn't have a great network, who maybe isn't as plugged into circles that, you know, perhaps you are. H how do they kind of open themselves up to these opportunities? How do they get involved in startups? And one of the reasons I'm saying is we've recently had a senior professor, you know, who's looking to enter the health tech world, right? You know, what advice would you give to them? A clinician looking to enter those positions? 
at the end of the day, there is no getting away from the fact that networking is important. Mm-hmm. It's not, the network itself isn't important to start with. I didn't have much of a network, but I was willing to go out and speak to people. So, you know, the first consultancy job that I got was because I attended a doctorpreneur's event, sat next to a gentleman, and because he was sitting next to me, I was, said hello to him, and it turns <laughs> out he was just setting up a management consultancy focused on healthcare, and they were looking for interns. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we then got chatting and I went and interviewed there and I joined as their first intern. Um, so I can't, at that point, my network was tiny. And even when I joined Ada, I didn't have a, I had a decent network by that point in the elderly care home sector yeah. and the healthcare services sector, let's say, but not really in the digital health sector. But hmm. I, yes, I did know Claire, but I guess at the end of the day, I was then willing to reach out to her and have that conversation with her. So I would say networking, putting yourself yeah. out there is important. You don't have to have a strong network to start with. Um, I think that also just being curious is important. So if you are someone who's willing to ask interesting questions or to pose interesting questions, then people will want to talk to you and will want you to get involved in their business. So, you know, I, I think that that is that lent, feeds into the networking piece, because I think in order to be good at networking, you need to be able to ask people interesting questions, have interesting conversations. Yeah. With them. I'm happy to get, go into a little bit more about the, the finer details and, and my thoughts on, on the art of networking in general. But, you know, I think that there is also just luck involved. Uh, but but yeah. also, I think there is some there is some hard work. So actually, yeah. you can do some of that conventional. There's a role open. Oh, on go on the Doctorpreneurs Opportunities website. Oh, I yeah. see that this particular startup is hiring for a clinician. I'm going to apply for that role, and I'm going to go and do the interview. And hopefully, at one of these interviews, everything will come together. They will like me. I'll like them, and I'll and I'll and I'll work there. So you know, I don't think that you. Ha- it's not all about who you know, or all about going out to speak to people. I think you can do the mm. conventional thing, go and apply. But you know, yeah. then I think you just need to be smart about knowing where those opportunities are. And so you know, yeah. you need to understand how to navigate LinkedIn to find those jobs. You yeah. need to know about things like Doctorpreneurs and, and you know, increasingly the other websites that are coming up where you can find these roles and then you can apply the conventional way. Mm. Um, so you need to put yourself out there in some shape or form. Mm. Michelle, so I always ask all of our guests actually about their tips, their, the art of networking. Um, so I'd like some of your tips on it too. But your, the important question I want to ask you is, so say you apply those those tips, those tricks when it comes to networking. How do you use networking to bring about an opportunity? Is it a case of just saying to someone, hey, can I come work for you? Can you give me an internship? How does an opportunity come about? How do you create an opportunity? So in terms of networking, I think the fundamental point is you have to enjoy it. Hmm. So hmm. do the do which parts of networking are interesting? having conversation having interesting conversations with interesting people so i think that in order to have interesting conversations with someone you need to talk to them for a certain length of time just going up to someone saying hi hello i hear you work at this company oh my god that must be amazing can you tell me what you do oh brilliant i'd love to give you my card and my details um and actually i'm looking for a particular role something Oh, and then you tick the box and you move on. You do the same thing with the next person, right? That is not an interesting conversation for either party. 
So you need to really take time in that conversation, spend at least 10, 15 minutes talking about various different topics. Um, and then interesting people, I think that you need to go out to a variety of different events. So, you yeah. know, the obvious thing is to go to a health tech networking event. Great, that's fine. But there, there are lots of events out there which are aimed at lawyers, at bankers, at advertisers. Go out to all of those different types of events. You may be the only doctor in the room at some of those places, but actually you can have a very different type of conversation because suddenly you're not talking about career. You're not talking about, oh, when did you graduate? Which medicals did you go to? What specialty are you doing? Or, or when did you leave medicine? And how did you get into digital health, right? You are inherently having a very different conversation if you go into a room full of lawyers. Um, mm. uh, but there, you'll find some common threads and you may want to pick a few topics of interest. It may be, oh, tell me about the impact of AI on the legal profession. Or yeah. tell me about how you guys as a law firm go out and do business development. How do you win new clients? Right. So there are certain things that you can ask multiple different industries, get different answers and perspectives. And so that's how you meet interesting people. I think go to different types of events and have longer conversations with each person that you meet. And I think that then finds fundamentally means you enjoy the process. And as a yeah. result, you also build connections with people whereby they remember you and yeah. hopefully they like you and they want to help you. And then thinking about how do you get the value from it? You don't get the value from it immediately. I think that it's really quite off-putting when someone comes up to talk to you and then just says, oh, I'm really looking for a job here. Look, unless there's a really obvious fit, like let's say you're a user research expert who's got a few years of clinical practice and you meet someone who is leading up the UX team or product design team at a startup. And then you may say to them, hey, look, it's really interesting. The, uh, the other week I was working on this problem as part of mm. my UX course. And there was an interesting question that came up about how do you convert a user from the free app that, or free offering that you've got to the premium version? Mm. And how, what does that sales cycle look like? Or what, what are the steps within the app that you can take to incentivize them? Um, and then, you know, you say, oh, you know what? Sounds like you're facing similar problems and challenges. Love to sort of explore how I might be able to help you with that. So that then very organically leads into, a, oh, there's an opportunity there. So great, but but that may not happen. You may be a U, UN yeah. user design expert talking to someone who's on the biz dev or the finance side of a startup. You don't go to them immediately and yeah. tell, do you have any roles available <laughs> in your team in the US? I think you yeah. need to say, well, actually, tell me more about the company you work out. Oh, that's really interesting. Would love to stay in touch. And you might want to sort of reach out to them a little bit mm. later and say, look, I've been reflecting on our conversation, looking into a little bit more about what your, your company is doing. Appreciate that you're in a slightly different department, but here's some recent work I've done in the UX space and would love to have a chat with one of the UX people. So it's, you know, I'm not saying don't ask, but you may not want to ask immediately and, and, and uh, you want to build the relationship first. Um, and then the other thing I would say is when you do have conversations with people, make an effort to then follow up with them in useful yeah. ways. So don't mm. email them a month later saying, oh, hey, just checking in, would love to, just wanted to know how things are going. Yeah. If mm. someone's busy, they're never going to respond to a message like that. <laughs> but instead say to them, oh, look, you know what? I read a really interesting article a couple of months, um, sorry, and if you recall, we met a couple of months ago at X event, had a really interesting conversation. Um, I just read this interest, this, um, this, art, this fascinating article about how, <laughs> you can use certain AI platforms to automate some of the financial uh, financial kind of 
reporting that you need to do in the health te- in in a in a healthcare company, something along those lines, whatever. Mm-hmm. I wondered what your perspective was on this. Or anyway, I just thought I would share this with you, right? And actually, just that sharing of interesting articles is very valuable for people. You're not necessarily res- expecting or asking for a response, but you are creating value in that relationship. Yeah for them um, and and so you know obviously that then goes back to one of my previous points that you need to be curious in order yeah. to have that asset that that sort of mm. set of articles that you might share with people you need to have actually read them and then be able to share them. so yeah it's, it's things like that which i think can help no, amazing definitely amazing. I think you, you're right in terms of curiosity to engage in those discussions be genuinely interested and it's the value and i think you know we live in a world where instant gratification, instant access kind of takes away from, you know, building this value, building this rapport, sharing opportunities. And and, and I think I remember we had Sam Desi recently saying, you know, it's a two way street, right? You need to be able to give value, take value, not like, hey, I'm, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, give me a job um, with a corner office, right? Um, talking about that, and I know the health tech founders that listen to the pod will be interested when you were doing kind of the biz dev role at ADA, I know you managed to kind of work with NHS, secure some partnerships. We literally had a company this morning while I was on the phone to a company where they're interested, but a few VCs are interested in investing, you know, they're entertaining it and they want to see a couple of pilots, you know, kind of integrated into NHS. What advice would you give to these startup founders that are looking to penetrate the NHS, secure some sort of partnership? And because you worked on the other side of the table, what are these investors, what are these PE firms looking for when they're looking to kind of commit um, to like a health tech startup? Yeah, so if I start with the, um, if I start with the, how do you sort of get contracts with the NHS side? The first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you want to go down the NHS route? And where do you think that leads to? Because it's very difficult to generate substantial revenue from the nhs for the majority of different majority of health tech products and services that are out there Mm -hmm. there are exceptions and there are some success stories and i think there are certain types of health tech products that can do well in the nhs Um, but it's a very difficult environment to sell into because Mm -hmm there is relatively little spare budget available to explore or experiment with innovations Mm -hmm. because the bar to getting started is so high. And I think that is one of the reasons why people like to hear that you're doing something with the NHS because they know that that means that you have got some credibility in terms of your because You can't just start working with the NHS. But then the other... But so that's challenge two. And then challenge three is the scale is really difficult because it isn't the case that you've smashed it at one or two CCGs and suddenly everyone wants a piece of you. First of all, because the system isn't set up that way. So NHS England makes a lot of policy decisions, but it doesn't ultimately make that many buying decisions. And therefore Mm -hmm. you need to go CCG to CCG or ICS to ICS. Um, and just because you, yeah, you smashed it at one, they don't really talk and say, oh, okay, you did it really well at one. You must be, you must be able to do it the other bit. You have to, and then sorry, there's actually one more thing. There's a fourth thing. The amount you have to bespoke your product for the NHS is really challenging. So 
there are a lot of challenges. I'm not saying that it's not worth going after the NHS, but I think you have to be really careful about what you're trying to achieve. Because if you're telling investors a story about mm. how you're going to get to a certain annual run rate on revenue in one or two years because you're selling to the NHS and your primary goal is to sell to the NHS, I think that most investors now thinking about your second question will probably run a mile. <laughs> um, you know, in, the, first of all, on the investor side, so... You know, I will come back to the NHS side in a minute, but those are challenges. On the investor side, first of all, you have to question, there are two different types of investors. There are the investors who do understand health tech. Yeah. Um, sorry, there are investors who understand healthcare fundamentally, and then they also specifically understand the nuances of health tech. And then there's the investors who don't, which was the majority of them a few years ago. I think that things are starting to change now, not least because some clinicians are coming on board uh, at some of these VCs or advising some of these VCs and, and helping them understand the nuanced world of healthcare and health tech. Mm. Uh, so first of all, you want to try and get into bed with a VC who actually gets it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Obviously, yeah. good signals are if they've had, if they've got healthcare companies in their portfolio since a long time. Right. Okay. Not just since the last one or two years, because if you did the last one or two years, it's almost like when you're collecting the football stickers or the Pokemon cards, you want to yeah. collect all the right ones. You want to collect the popular ones. Yeah. Right. So that you can then trade them quickly with someone else. So if that's what these mm. guys are trying to do, you don't want to get into bed with those and say, OK, well, interesting. You've actually invested in this company over five to six years. You're getting to the point where you might now exit with this exactly. company in some shape or form. You really understand what that journey looks like. OK, so I think you need to be you need to be very mindful of that. Uh, get into bed with the right type of investors. And then, and then what are they looking for? And then I think they're looking for uh, profitability, ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, which again is something that really was just a taboo word in the investment world for so long. And I just, it was almost like, oh my God, we couldn't possibly ask. <laughs> it's, it's like when you're dating someone and, you know, they, they you know, let's say they, uh, they are, uh, they're eating meat and your veggie or something. You're like, oh, I couldn't yeah. possibly ask them to go veggie. That would be a step forward. It's like, <laughs> we couldn't possibly ask for profitability from their portfolio companies. That would be pushing. I think they'll run away. I think that they'll break up the relationship if we ask them. <laughs> that. Um, so, so, you know, luckily now, not luckily, but thankfully, because of the economic downturn, things are changing and people are actually paying attention to profitability. So I think that is the number one thing. You need to yeah. build a mm. business with an understanding of how you ultimately get to profitability. Um, and I think the second thing is that they look for uh, who have you hired and, and you mm. know, what, what is the, the quality of the people you've hired and the nature of the work that they're doing. So, you know, you don't want to be building up a, a company stack full of financiers or marketeers or whatever. <laughs> you want to have a good balance of, of the right disciplines. Um, and then you want to show that you've managed to get some really good quality people on board. Now, you don't, you don't have to have all headline names, but if you've, if you show you've got people who've been at health tech firms before or been in the healthcare sector before, I think that's a really positive thing that the savvy investors will look for. Um, so I think those are a couple of things that the investor side will look for up front. And then just very quickly going back to the NHS. Um, so it's difficult. I, I encourage people to do pilots to start with, definitely, because I think you learn a heck of a lot about product mm -hmm. development when you do a pilot. That's the main benefit, not, not financial benefit. But then ultimately, if you want to make money in this game, I think you need to look at 
either developing a, a product which will scale. So some of the things that will scale, some of the things, for example, like what AccuRx are doing, some of the more back-end, the yeah. not so glamorous side of the health tech solutions. Um, if you want to do the more glamorous side, I think you need to look at the US because that's where there is more innovation budget available that people are willing to experiment and spend money on. Um, and, and so you need to, you need to you just, I think, yeah, look, look a bit more at the US. And then the other, the yeah, I think those, those are a couple of things I would say about trying to sell into the NHS. Hmm. No, thank you for sharing that. A lot of people do develop ideas, even at medical school level, and they start thinking about pilots, right? What's a good pilot in your in your experience? If you just just give us a few tips on that and insight on that. Yeah, sure. So, so, so a good pilot is one with an organization that you can see it rolling into a, finan- a, a revenue generating contract. So mm-hmm. this is an organization that you would want to have as one of your first customers um, mm. that you build into the pilot, into the contract or into the discussions, the KPIs, the metrics that they expect you to hit during the pilot in order for them to consider this a successful solution. And once that's down on paper and you've hit those metrics, you go back to them and say, well, look what we look what we discussed, look what we've done with the met with the product. It's time to talk about that revenue generating contract. Mm. Um, and then I think that the third thing is you must have a clinical champion wherever you're working or a champion. Okay? It doesn't have to be a clinical, but a champion, because that's the person who's going to fight your corner when things are tough during that pilot, because they'll get tough. You're, you're still developing the product. There's going to be niggles. So you need that champion mm. to fight your corner. And then the last thing I'll say is that you need to have an organization, a partner who really wants to lean in on the product development side and wants to advise you on that. Because as I said before, I think the number one benefit you get from a pilot is probably that product development piece where you get so much really good feedback, real world feedback that will then feed into the improvement on the product side. So obviously you need your product team to be geared up and ready to work with that partner and adapt to the needs that that partner is is identifying. But, but you know, those are some of the things that I think make for a good pilot. And on that point, Richard, actually, so I had a few, this, this might be a controversial point, right? So pilots, sometimes pilots are dragged out to sort of um, on the service provider side, right? To use the innovation for a very long time to benefit and reap the rewards. While from the startup side, it's seen as, no, I'm collecting data. What's the sweet spot? And how do you negotiate that? Because you can, you can easily see that as it takes a long, long time to get a product into health, right? And you're, you're doing a two year long pilot. Is that even right to do? Is that is it is it right to do a two year long pilot or should it be short, snappy and sweet to just collect a snapshot of data that you can present and move on with? It's right to do a two year or however long pilot, a longish pilot if you're in the research and development phase of your product. And fundamentally, you are know you know that you need to refine the product before you're able to sell it. Um, and actually, that partner you pick may not be a partner that you then ultimately sell to. It, it, it will look like a partner you might sell to, but it may not be the partner that you try to sell to. But, mm. you know, at some point, you need to move out of that research and development phase, right? And let, mm. once once you feel like you're clearly in the we're selling phase, but we need to start by doing a pilot to prove our worth, then a two-year pilot does not make any sense at all. So you need to have built into that pilot an agreement that says, this ends after six months or this ends after a year. And ideally, it ends with you rolling this into a contract with us because we've hit the metrics. So, you know, depending on the phase and the stage of the company development, um, possibly, but for for the vast majority of them, I'd say no, a two year plus pilot is a very dangerous ground to go down um, because, you know, I don't think ultimately you're going to get the value that you need from that. Good advice you're given.
because I know a lot of founders are struggling with that at the moment um, due to the nature of the beast, essentially. Kind of going back to your career, Vishal, clinical doctor for years, strategy consulting, works at ADA. Tell us now where you are at. You know, you're at YouTube, managing the health at the UK side. Keen to know how that opportunity presented and what you're doing. And the exciting thing for us is we love content, as you can imagine, right? Tell us, you know, what the, the, the mission is. What is Google, YouTube trying to achieve with this content or the, the new wave of what we call professional content creators? The YouTube opportunity came about again through, uh, it was opportunistic. So I did apply the conventional way, actually, going back to what I was saying before, to a Google Health role. And I was unsuccessful in that role. And uh, but, but they kept my details. And therefore, they then reached out to me when the YouTube Health ca- uh, role came along and asked me to interview for that role. So again, then via the conventional way, went through the interviews and, mm-hmm. and, took, and got the role. And, and so the reason I took the role is because there is an opportunity at, at YouTube to create an incredible amount of impact on people's, on people's health because of the reach that YouTube has. And so that yeah. is why I took this role. One and two, because they gave me a blank canvas. They said, well, YouTube health is a brand new thing. We need someone to build it out for the UK. So yes, I'm sitting in this massive business uh, <laughs> with lots of maturity and structures and processes to it. But I still have that opportunity to have a bit more of a free hand to, to, to be relatively autonomous um, and creative and entrepreneurial in the work that I do because we're building out YouTube health from scratch. So that's why I took the role on. In terms of what we're trying to achieve, fundamentally, we're trying to make it easier for viewers to access high quality, authoritative health information. And we're trying to uh, tap into as diverse a set of voices as possible to deliver that content. So we do work with the NHS, but we also work with a bunch of individual healthcare professionals. We work with nurses, with physiotherapists. We work with individual patient advocates who are telling their story. We work with health charities. And so we're trying to bring a breadth of perspective around health topics to people, validating that by working with the NHS to say what is high quality content look like. So the NHS, along with the Academy Medical Royal Colleges, have put together a set of content standards against which we require our health content sources to adhere to. And that then creates the optimal viewer experience, whereby they're getting access to the information they want from the variety of different perspectives that suit their particular needs. No, I think think it's incredible. And And it makes sense, right? The amount of content that's been consumed on YouTube, you know, it makes sense to have legitimate kind of authorized healthcare content on there and and i like the way you mentioned voices from a variety of people and backgrounds the question i know a lot of our listeners will have youtube is a beast right there's always concerns around the algorithms how do you get in front of people what can healthcare professionals who are creating content on youtube do to kind of get ahead you know, what are the things that will help them grow, help their channel grow, help them get kind of that exposure they're really looking for? So I know that we've talked uh, about a potential webinar between us. Very exciting. Nice. So hopefully, you know, there are ways through that through that um, webinar that I can share some more details around this. But I've just recently run a health content best practices 
um, series, actually, a series of five kind of one hour videos. So, you know, for anyone interested, more than happy, if you're already creating content or about to create content, more than happy to share those recordings with you, you can reach out to me via LinkedIn or, uh, or through you guys. Uh, but, you know, what I would say is that you need to respond to what the viewer is interested in. So the, mm-hmm. you need to look at all of the different ways in which you can understand what is important to viewers at this point in time. So, you know, if you're practicing on the front line, great. You can you can see what are the most commonly asked questions from your patients. Look on uh, the Google Google Trends website and, and you know, filter for YouTube trends to see which are the topics that are biggest and most popular. Go on the YouTube website itself on the homepage and go into the, the trend section and the news section there and say, what is the breaking news and which of that is related to health, for example. And so I think responding to what viewers are interested in is one thing. The other thing I would say is you need to be personable and engaging on camera. So you need mm. to share a little bit of yourself, show some vulnerability, explain to people who you are and why you're doing this, where you're coming from. Don't just be really robotic like you like a textbook is and just spurt out the information about a health topic because ultimately that is not going to hook people in. So you need to touch mm. on their emotional side as well and be empathetic in your videos. Uh, so I would say that those are kind of two of the biggest things to think about when you're getting started. But obviously there's a whole whole bunch more that I can share with those who want sure. to get deeper. No, thank you so much, Vishal, yeah, for taking absolutely. the time out, sharing what you do, sharing your journey. Like you mentioned, we've got a lot of exciting stuff that we can do together to help those content creators. Uh, but no, thank you once again for taking the time out to jump onto the pod today, Vishal. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for your time and no. uh, love what you guys are doing. So thank you.